So this is the first picture, if you can see this picture, that was released after the fire in Notre Dame. And there was a reporter who was the very first reporter allowed in. His name's Robert Hardman. And he wrote this. At 1 a.m. today, at the far end of the cathedral, illuminated by lingering embers and firefighters' equipment, I could just make out a stunning symbol of defiance through the gloom, the unmistakable sight of a crucifix on what remains of the altar. Is it a sign of hope in the midst of all the debris? Is there something epic about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that actually is stronger than all the undoing of God's beautiful creation. A friend of mine, there's a pastor's gathering every year, and a friend of mine at this gathering, his name's Doug, he was telling a Paris story. And it was a really special story to him. He was talking about how he had the opportunity to hang out with his brother there. He actually went to a missions conference in Austria, and he and his wife decided to spend some time in France, invited his brother, whom he never sees, and is constantly inviting to come and spend time with him. But this brother, by his own description, is a workaholic and never makes time for those kinds of things. But he was surprised when his brother said, yes, I'd love to join you. So he and his wife went over to Europe, and they all hung out in France for a while, including Paris. And they were on the second floor of the Eiffel Tower, looking at the view. And all of a sudden, his brother asked him, I'd like to ask you a theological question. Of course, Doug, my friend, is like, yikes, what's he going to ask me? And this is what he asked. He said, what do you say to parents who've lost their young child? What do you say to parents who've lost their young child? Why would God allow that? Well, Doug gulped, and he prayed, and he thought, what in the world? This is the question that everybody asks, right? Why would God allow suffering and evil? Well, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, Dave, God hates death. And he was almost surprised by the bluntness of his words. So he paused for a moment, and then he went on, and he said, God hates death like a doctor hates cancer, like a judge hates injustice. God is all about life. God gave us life in the first place and made this amazing creation. Death and everything that goes with it came into the picture because humanity didn't want to trust God. But the whole Bible is about God providing ways for us to choose life and love and hope in the midst of death. In fact, God hates death so much that he sent Jesus to defeat death so that we would have abundant life now and forever. His brother said, is that what you tell parents? He said, well, in a more interactive pastoral way, yes. When I heard Doug tell that story, I thought, that is a great Easter message right there. But in order to really appreciate how God has overcome death, I think we have to expand our definition of death. I think we have to have a bigger understanding of what death is. It's more than just physical death, right? The first time the word death is introduced in the Bible, Nobody dies. 
The first time that word comes into scripture is about the time when there was the option for Adam and Eve to choose disconnectedness with God, to distrust God, and to go their own way. So it wasn't about a physical death. It was about choosing to disconnect from God. And they chose not to trust God. And then after that, there is this cascading ripple of disconnection all through creation with themselves, with one another, with everyone else. So when death comes into the very goodness of God's creation, it's so much more than physical death. It is disconnection. And why does God hate it? Because it's antithetical to what made creation very good in the first place, which is the connections. So if we look back on Jesus' death and the story that's told about Jesus' death, we could arguably say that the worst part of Jesus' death was not necessarily what happened to him physically, which was absolutely horrible. But if you read the story and listen to the story, the most agonizing part of Jesus' death is when you hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's about this disconnection at the very center of who God is. That is what God hates, and that is what Jesus took to the grave. Father Michael Flager, he's a Roman Catholic priest in Chicago, and he wrote this response to the fire at Notre Dame. I am saddened to hear of the fire that nearly destroyed Notre Dame in Paris, but no more saddened than when I heard of the three black churches burned in Louisiana. Notre Dame may have been started by construction, but the black churches were destroyed by hate. As far as we know, as far as I know, there were no physical deaths that happened in any of these fires, but death was very present in Louisiana. The radical disconnect that was acted out by a white supremacist, the othering, whatever moves us away from belonging to one another, whatever moves us away from the interconnectedness of all things, God hates that. God enters into that. God is destroyed by that, and Jesus Christ, raised from that, completely reverses the flow of that disconnectedness in Jesus' resurrection. Death is all about disconnection. This was illustrated in an unusual way to me when I was listening to Lisa Genova speak not that long ago and, and looked again at her talk, her TED talk. She wrote the book Still Alice and she was covering the topic of Alzheimer's of which she is an expert, she's a neuroscientist. Um, and she was talking about the horrifying death of the brain that Alzheimer's is and how it actually works and had this particular picture up there, a graph so that you could understand. I don't know if you can see that, but it's a picture of neurons and in that little circle right in the middle, that's the synapse. And what happens with Alzheimer's is when these, I think they're called amyloid betas, start clogging up the synapses and there is this disconnection, and when that happens, the brain begins to die. And it was very horrifying to listen to her because she said, even now, as you get older, these amyloid betas are growing, and they are collecting between your synapses. And the older you get, the more likely it is that you will have Alzheimer's. And then she went on to talk about what was hopeful 
which wasn't as much as everybody wanted, but what was hopeful is that you can create new synapses with new learning and maybe outgrow even some of the clogging that's going on in the synapses. Well, of course, everybody was sitting on the edge of their seat, hopeful that, you know, we could do something, you know, go learn Spanish, go learn something new. And even listening to her, she said, was a hopeful thing because we were learning about Alzheimer's. What is at the heart of death is disconnection. And what's at the heart of the good news is that God hates death so much that he sent Jesus to defeat death so that we could have abundant life now. What does that look like? If God is overcoming this disconnection from God and from one another, what might that new life in the midst of death look like for us? I think maybe it's worthwhile for us to explore the places of disconnection that feel most hopeless to us right now. I was reading an article, and in the title, it said, America is more divided now than any time since the Civil War. It was an article about a poll that had been taken. I don't think we actually need to take a poll to know what it came up with, which is that the majority of participants viewed the opposing party as ignorant and spiteful, even evil, and believe the other side was responsible for destroying the country. I think we know that we're getting more and more calcified in our divisions. Going to our separate corners, finding reasons to stay in our separate corners, very few people really are having conversations with those who represent a different view. And I think we all feel it every day, in the news, in our families, in our workplaces, in the church, in our schools, this grand canyon of disconnection that just seems to be going like this. Oakland pastor Ben McBride was gathered with a group of clergy, faith leaders, and he said, this is a spiritual crisis. This radical division. He said, we are at a crossroads as a country because we have this inability to bridge across our differences. And he quoted a poll. He said that there were a group of people that were asked, if a quarter of the other side just died, we'd be better off, true or false. And a significant percentage said, yes. Ben McBride said, we are sick. We are sick, and who will bring the medicine? And as he looked out over all these faith leaders, he said, we will. We will. God's gift, God's medicine in Jesus Christ is victory over death and a new creation. So he started introducing to us what is called the belong movement and how we are creating belong circles of 10 people to learn how to have conversations across our differences. If you're interested in being one of those groups, you can let me know. He said, we must become a new people where we bridge across differences and belong to each other. You know, another way I see us feeling hopeless over our disconnectedness is with our lifestyle here in Silicon Valley and how that causes us to be, quote, radically disconnected from each other. 
We don't want that disconnection, but it's the direction we're watching ourselves go with this sense that we can't do anything about it. I'm just gonna speak for myself here and name some of the ways I see it happening and the way I notice that it impacts me. For instance, with texting. Texting is very convenient. As Father Gregory Boyle says, it beats the heck out of actually having a conversation with somebody. <laughs> but you know, the thing that I'm realizing is that with texting, it's convincing me that, for instance, the next generation would rather that I text them than have a conversation. And so I don't call them and have a conversation, but I kind of bucked that trend recently, called my nephew, who's very shy. It was his birthday the next day. We had a half an hour conversation on the phone. It was a miracle. That's what it felt like, a miracle, that we had a half an hour conversation on the phone. I don't want to be convinced that texting is a real conversation. It's not. Getting news on Facebook. I love getting news on Facebook. I love hearing about you on Facebook. I would love to be your friend on Facebook and Instagram. But it's not the same as a relationship when I hear people say, well, I'll see you on Facebook. Well, that's true, but you'll only see this minuscule part of me that I choose to put on Facebook that you might see. It's not a relationship. It's not being in touch. And then, of course, we all like to lament about what it's like to be in the same room with people who are all on their cell phones. And it happens so easily, getting together with friends and you're trying your hardest to find these times where you can get together, and all of a sudden somebody says, well, I'll look that up because I don't really know what that is, and you look it up and you're lost in cell phone land. Or, I've got a picture, and so you open your cell phone and there you go, you're off in another world, and here you are sitting with your friends that it took you a long time to get together with, and you're not even talking to them. And I think there is this assumption that we are so busy that we can't do anything about it. It always surprises me when people say, well, I would have called you or I would have wanted to get together, but you're so busy. And it's like, I'm, am I too busy for relationships? And then I kind of buy into it, where I'm in a conversation and I find myself leaving a conversation that I really don't want to leave, but I'm thinking, I'm so busy. And it's like, where does that script come from? And then when I actually sat the other day and had a two-hour lunch with somebody and I tried to leave it about 30 you know, minutes worth, it was like, why am I trying? I'm loving this conversation. Because there's this text that says we're so busy. And I think there's this sense that we can't do anything about this. Talking to somebody recently that I bumped into, it was so good to see this person. This person's been gone, not around taking a master's and parenting full-time and having to do the internship, and, and the person looked at me and said, you know, I knew it was more than I could handle, but shrugged, and it was kind of like, you can't say no. You just power through, right? What can possibly reverse this flow of disconnectedness in our culture? Well, I want to notice some resurrection seeds that are being planted by the church. We just celebrated this amazing Youth Mexico mission trip where these 46, 47 high school students and advisors went down to Mexico. And of course, we celebrated the four houses that they built. But I would say the hidden treasure in all that was the way they actually got to unplug and hang out. And you had moms and dads with their high school students hanging out you had high school students hanging out with each other, being in relationship 
perhaps the greatest gift, being in a culture that is committed to community and relationship. Those are resurrection seeds right there. Thinking about the series that we want to offer this fall called Godspeed, it's all about moving at the pace of relationships. Having that be our fall series, small group series. You know, my pastor friend in Paris with his brother, he was so excited when he told this story because it was a meaningful relationship, conversation, hanging out time with a brother he never gets to be with. There was a reconnecting between siblings. There was a reconnecting with God's goodness. It was just a small but delicious taste of what the resurrection looks like for us today. It looks like this bridging across our differences. It looks like making relationships our priority with God and one another. The crucifix in the midst of the undoing of God's beautiful creation. A sign of hope. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are greater than everything that would undo us, that tried to undo you. I thank you that you have taken this into your very being in Jesus' death, and you have raised us from it. So we lift to you ourselves, our relationship with you, our relationships with one another, and everything that would threaten that, and we give you praise. We give you praise that you've overcome it. In Jesus' name, amen.